You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. The following recording may or may not include instances of words being said that the FCC would fine me for if their long arm could ever reach. It's Wednesday, November 13th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today is the launch of a project called The Purple Project for Democracy. It emphasizes civic engagement, education, participation. Perhaps you've all seen the hashtag on social media, We the Purple. And perhaps that hashtag reminds you of the source material. It was a Simpsons episode where Lisa wins an essay contest and a losing essayist is admonished by a stern father figure. We the purple? What the hell was that? Indeed. I suppose this day could have been called You Choo Choo Choose Me or Whacking Day or even the day named after what I call hamburgers, which is steamed hams. You call hamburgers steamed hams. Indeed I do. Civic engagement is certainly a social good. It aids with the cohesion and potency of a functional democracy. And yet, on this day, this particular day, with these impeachment hearings, I find it hard to just be, I don't know, blandly patriotic, broadly supportive of our tripartite government, confident and unconcerned that our country is on the right course. In fact, I feel like I should channel Lisa Simpson from that very same episode as I throw away my script and allege... Lisa Simpson will now read her essay. I would like to read a different essay, if I may. Um, okay. The city of Washington was built on a stagnant swamp some 200 years ago, and very little has changed. It stank then, and it stinks now. (gasps) Okay, the pointy-haired cartoon who never ages is right. But I kind of look, I'd like to look, I'm going to look at impeachment as the system working. Sure, it's not great that impeachment hearings have to convene at all, but that there is a system to combat high crimes and misdemeanors, that's good. That it can be confronted, that's good. Also, I do think it's good that there is a price to pay among those who both pursue impeachment and removal, but also no small cost For those who oppose it, there is something right and balanced about that. Something, I don't know, a little purple. Now today, the two witnesses who were called before the House Intelligence Committee, Ambassador William Taylor and State Department official George Kent, were sterling. They were wonderful. And it also, if I may opine a little bit, it seems like they're exemplary patriots. And if nothing else, the proceedings revealed and exposed this moment of malarkey. First, Representative Brad Wenstrup, whose placard reads Dr. Wenstrup, and who the witnesses all very dutifully referred to as doctor. He is a podiatrist. 
Dr. Representative Wenstra put this notion out there. And maybe now we understand what President Obama meant when he told Russian President Medvedev that he'd have more flexibility after his election. Maybe that flexibility was to deny lethal aid to the Ukraine, allowing Russia to march right in and kill Ukrainians. Seemed like a good point, but what gave me a little purplish hope for democracy was when committee chair Adam Schiff said this. A couple of my colleagues referenced the conversation, the hot mic conversation between President Obama uh, and uh, President Medvedev. That was in 2012. There's a suggestion that he was saying he was going to go easy on Russia over the invasion of Ukraine. But that invasion took place two years after that conversation. You don't have any reason to believe that President Obama was referring to going easy on Russia for an invasion that hadn't happened yet, do you? Uh, Mr. Chairman, I have no knowledge of uh, what was in... It was more or less a rhetorical question. Yeah. So, you know what? That's a moment of the system working. So here we are, not just on Purpley Day, but on World Kindness Day. Yeah, I kind of took a beating. But we are living the ideals of we the purple. Let's just remember this. Bruises are purple, too. On the show today, I spiel about an underexplored aspect of the Republicans' version of why conditioning missiles for investigations is totally legitimate. But first, I will live by my purple ideals. I, a fairly moderate Democrat, talked to Rich Lowry, a quite conservative Republican, about the idea of nationalism. Lowry has an idea about a nation that is said to be founded on an idea, but really, he says, the U.S. was founded pretty much like all nations are founded on factors like kinship, religion, traditions, and borders. I think it's a good conversation. I think it's a challenging conversation. I think it's interesting. But you be the judge. And that, your part in the conversation, that is really the most essential part in this civic exercise. That is my interview with Rich Lowry on the case for nationalism. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's a case that I didn't know I needed made, but it's made interestingly, and that's because it's made by Rich Lowry, who is the editor of the National Review, and I listen to him every week in the Editor's Podcast. The new book is called The Case for Nationalism, How It Made Us Powerful, United, and Free. Hello, Rich. Welcome to The Gist. Thanks for having me. United. That's the first one I'm going to underline. I don't know that we're united. I don't know that we're united on the idea of nationalism. Some of us are united, but before I even get into uh, some terms about the semantics, does your book rely on a premise that Americans are mostly agreeing in this project of nationalism? No. So my case is nationalism, or at least national loyalty is very old phenomenon, very natural phenomenon, very powerful. There have been attempts to wipe it out through history, empires, totalitarian ideologies, never succeeds. It's also part of the mainstream of the American tradition. You don't get a revolution without it. You don't get a constitution without it. You don't get victory in the Civil War without it. And it runs through 
Hamilton, Lincoln, TR, and, and into FDR and, and even Reagan. Right, right. So and that's, to be that's clear, the elevator pitch. Right. It's not that America was based on an idea. This is an idea that we always hear. You don't believe in the idea. You believe America was based on a nation and what we think of a nation. A shared people, shared right. borders, shared. Maybe ideas are part of it, but it's not that we signed up to a yeah. thesis. Right. Yep. They are part of it. Definitely part of our national identity have been from the beginning, but we're more than an abstraction. And the example I use when I'm talking about the book is African-American. And a white American meet on the steps of the Paris Opera House tonight. Instantly, they have more in common. It doesn't matter what their politics are, where they are in the country, than anyone around them. Same dress, uh, largely same cuisine, same set of cultural references, probably the same heroes, no same sports, pop culture. That's culture. But the very biggest thing that you say in the book, you didn't even say it. Language. It's the language. They're speaking English. Language. Yeah. Yeah. That's the big Um, thing. Which is just a key common bond. So on unity, obviously, we're not... united on much now. But the true nationalism, I think, is a unifying force because it's a loyalty above tribe, above ethnicity, above party. And you can only, I think, consider nationalism tribal from some sort of cosmopolitan citizen of the world perspective, which I think is a fantasy and a myth. And where you really see tribalism, and I mentioned this in the book, is especially Middle East, Africa, where by colonial powers for a very long time, artificial borders, and not uh, when they're liberated, uh, not enough a sense of nationhood and national loyalty to make the places cohere. And uh, when you don't have that, you have disorder, collapse, civil war, coups. Okay. So this is what I think is going on. I think that there's an interesting argument, but I tried to read the book and I did this thought experiment. What if we replace the word patriotism with nationalism and vice versa? And you do this too. And in fact, the book starts with Emmanuel Macron lecturing Donald Trump, patriotism good, nationalism bad. So first of all, the first thing I'd like to stipulate is that if we were going into this and just choosing the word that has less concerning connotations, patriotism is should actually be more pejorative than nationalism. That's first of all, because of the patriarchy yeah. and where where the word comes from. Right. So they're loosely interchangeable in informal usage, patriotism and nationalism. But since so much weight is put on the difference of the two words and everything good about national feelings attributed to patriotism and everything bad attributed to nationalism... I think you have to get into the definition and the roots of patriotism, as you mentioned, patre, patriarchy, same roots, fathers, fatherland, loyalty to our own. That's patriotism. Right. None of these are good things as well, we think I, of them no, today. I, you know, I think they, uh, they're natural things and can be good things. But if so, you were to ask Emmanuel Macron, who, by the way, today passed anti, well, I wouldn't say anti-immigration, but, you know, stronger immigration laws than maybe he was alluding to when he was talking with Donald Trump sitting next to him. If you ask Macron, if you asked, you know, most of the people who are volunteering for the Warren campaign, pick one patriotism or nationalism, they definitely say patriotism. Yeah. 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 And where I think nationalism has to come in is because they're defining patriotism largely as a set of ideals. So where do borders come in then? Where does sovereignty come in then? Where do common culture comes in? That's where I think the, the word nationalism is useful. And I don't think nationalism is opposed to ideals. I think every major nation has some vision of itself and has a nationalism kind of shot through with certain ideals. Okay, let's talk about race a little bit. The nation was founded based on all the things that we talked about, but within its founding were a bunch of people who didn't have any say in this at all. Yes. And then they were freed, and then they were, in many cases, quote-unquote freed, and they were still denied a say. So now let's stipulate to some degree or another, different people will disagree, 
everyone who was part of that horrible, peculiar institution, right, and all their children are here. They're part of the nation. They didn't ask for any of this, right, or their forefathers didn't. Why does your definition of nationalism also encapsulate them who are just yes. dragged along? So I put a real emphasis on the cultural nation. And the New York Times 1619 project, there are a lot of it, aspects of it I object to, I think are actually uh, deceitful and dishonest in uh, rendering our history. The thing that I think is absolutely correct and very moving is the lead essay in the New York Times magazine just described how African-Americans have been part of this country from the very beginning, their blood, their sweat, their toil, part of the creation of this country, participated in every American war, even when they had zero rights. And, right. And were, if they went overseas, were coming back to a place that was going to oppress them. It starts and, with the essayist, Hannah Jones, who put yeah. it together, talk about her father, and yep. a vet, it was a veteran, the and flag the flag on, the on his yep. front yard. Yes. Yep. That was all tremendous. And at the end of the, the essay, I read it very closely because I critiqued a number of things about it. But she talks about being in elementary school or something, and the teacher says, well, come on the globe and show what country your family is from. And they don't know, her and her friend, they don't know because they're so American, right? And uh, I was going to say also, you know, these African-American leaders were the freedom fighters in our country. So all that is true. And what failed them was the state and government largely. And in the sweep of history, it was generally American nationalists who were on the right side of this. You know, Hamilton, really a taproot of the American nationalist tradition, is better on this than a lot of his contemporaries. And Lincoln, I think, is obviously a nationalist. And it was people who believed and created a spurious version of states' rights or a spurious a southern nationalism that was entirely an artificial creation, in my view, all about defending chattel slavery, they were the anti-nationalist. And even the last spasm, effectively the Civil War in the 1960s, when we, excuse me, when we get the Civil Rights Act, that's also a nationalist endeavor. So there's a reason I talk to conservative friends about this a lot. Conservatives tend to view the federal government as this tool of oppression. You know, you got a turtle in your backyard and out west somewhere, and the EPA is going to say you can't dig a hole there or whatever. But African-Americans, for good reasons, look at the federal government and say that was the vehicle of freedom and progress for yeah. us. And there's a lot to be said for that. Yeah, when it was working out correctly, <laughs> when Woodrow Wilson wasn't in charge and right, when, right. when Andrew Johnson wasn't in charge. And right. Yeah. So nationalism often means white ethnic nationalism. And I think probably when Donald Trump tries to defend the word, that's either consciously or unconsciously, and I tend to think consciously, what he's trying to associate himself with. He's trying to get a little bit of uh, momentum from the support of the people who were told, you're bad, and a lot of those people are white nationalists, or people like Steve King, who will defend Mm -hmm. the idea of white nationalism. I understand as an intellectual exercise why it might be interesting, but does it bother you that you might be giving comfort to uh, Trump in that effort in rehabilitating the idea of nationalism? Well, again, I don't, I don't see anything wrong with rehabilitating the, the notion of nationalism. And Trump's nationalism, when it's on the prompter and it's been written, I think it's unassailable. Well, it's Stephen Miller's uh, nationalism then. <laughs> but like his UN, UN speech where he's like, we all represent a distinct culture that governs themselves and we all pursue our interests in this part of the tapestry of the world. This is one thing that annoys me 
and you know, listening to the podcast, I'm critical of Trump and I'm defensive at times as well, is all during the George W. Bush administration, we heard from the left, this is horrible, like neo-imperialism. We're going to go around and change all the world into our image and, and make everyone into Jeffersonian Democrats. It's so terrible. And then Trump shows up and, you know, I'm more inclined to Bush's foreign policy than Trump. And Trump shows up, well, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to respect just other nations and their sovereignty. Good. <laughs> Thank yeah. goodness. But instead, it's turned around. And there's a criticism of that, too. Yeah. I would say, since I've probably been on both sides of those things, I would say it seems that, A, Bush's motivation was an earnest, if maybe naive one, that we could reshape the world. But a lot of people did not even conceive the earnestness of it at the time. Okay. That said, it does seem that it's extremely fair to criticize Trump's motivation in saying that because it seems mostly to be selfish and transactional. And if anything, he looks at his articulation of American foreign policy is probably something like that which enriches me. Well, or, you know, enriches our nation at the expense of, other, you know, the obsession with taking the oil, which he talked yeah. about in the campaign and now sort of guarding the oil in, in Syria is like a little echo or, or that, looking so. at or looking at the fact that we have to or we've agreed to provide the essentially provide the military apparatus of Germany. And if you asked people who lived through the last 100 years of history, wow, here's the United States and the United States or some benign power is tasked with providing Germany its military. Anyone who knows history would say, what a great idea that is. How many lives will that save? Yeah. So I I, I think Trump's right when he says, you know, national interest should be the test. And one reason this had an appeal, at least to a lot of Republican voters, more than I would have expected going into 2016, is they thought that Bush's version was so overly idealistic and we got over our skis and we were no longer paying enough attention to our interests. But the question of Germany and NATO, it just goes to, all right, our national interest to be paramount. What is it and how do we pursue it? And, you know, NATO hasn't fallen apart, but I think that his skepticism about NATO is not justified. And the old saw, you know, NATO exists to keep the Germans down, the Russians out, and the U.S. in still applies. And that yeah. served our interests very, very well. Yes. And, and he has too much of a real estate negotiators. Well, damn it, how much money are you putting on the, the table? And is it enough? And can I bargain you into more? What do you think Donald Trump gets right and gets wrong about the idea of nationalism? And he might do it by luck and backing into it, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, he understood the power of it. The kind of the baton was left on the floor, the nationalist baton, because Democrats have turned their back on it, even though it's part of their tradition running through FDR, JFK. And Republicans have lost touch with it, I think, under an libertarian influence, under the influence of business elite, a little more transnational in orientation rather than national. I don't know whether instinctively, accidentally, whatever, he picks up this powerful baton. What I think he gets right, as we talked about earlier on the teleprompter, like his Poland speech, where he talked about the incredible endurance of the Polish nation, the Polish culture, even when it's occupied, even when it suffers the most horrific atrocities in World War II, it endures. And that goes to my very first statement when I was giving the elevator pitch for the book. That's a great example. Poland's constantly been overrun, invaded, pulled apart, but it hasn't gone anywhere right. because there's something Polish about the Poles. And the philosopher Rousseau, actually at a time uh, when Poland was occupied by the Russians, said, stay Polish, stay Polish, and they'll never, ever really conquer you. And that's stayed true. And so, look, could Trump explain that to you? <laughs> you know, or do you just stand there and read it? He read it. But the speech was good. And where he falls down, obviously, is needlessly divisive. You know, one example from 
time, you know, as you know, time's very distorted in the Trump era, Mike, but I don't know how long ago was it, two months ago, the Baltimore tweets. So no human being would want to live in Baltimore. Well, one, human beings are living in Baltimore. Two, they're Americans, and you're the head of the state of the United States of America. Something's got to compute there, right? Yeah. I mean, you have to stop the tweet, stop your thumbs and think about I'm no longer the host of the Celebrity Apprentice. I'm the president of all the country. And that's like the unifying potential of nationalism would be kind of a one nation appeal. We're all in this together. And again, he'll say it at times, you know, certain after certain terrible events or on the teleprompter. But then he, you know, he gets on, on Twitter and out in the wild, he he falls down on this. Rich Lowry, The Case for Nationalism, How It Made Us Powerful, United, and Free. Thanks for coming in, Rich. Thanks so much for taking time with the book and for having me. Absolutely. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. And now the spiel. Let us use this time to take the Republicans at their word, to take seriously, and not as some, I don't know, distractionary tactic, their claim that President Trump's dealings with Ukraine were legitimate. In the spirit of fairness and inquiry, I am not going to assert bad faith. I will credit them, but also let us examine the central tenet of their theory of the case, which is this, that there was corruption in Ukraine and that the president, President Trump, was earnestly trying to root out and combat that corruption. Here now is Representative Devin Nunes expressing that very sentiment. The Democrats downplay, ignore, or outright deny the many indications that Ukrainians actually did meddle in the election. A shocking about face for people who for three years argued that foreign election meddling was an intolerable crime that threatened the heart of our democracy. Just an editorial note. Foreign election meddling is a shocking crime that threatens the heart of democracy. Thought I should say that. While the brazen suddenness of this U-turn is jarring, this denial is a necessary part of their argument. After all, if there actually were indications of Ukraine election meddling, and if foreign election meddling is a dire threat, then President Trump would have a perfectly good reason for wanting to find out what happened. If it was happening, yes, 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 I know. It's hard for some people to get past this. It is true. There is no legitimate evidence that Hunter Biden was corrupt. Certainly no evidence that Joe Biden benefited from any corruption. But when we focus on that, we fail to appreciate how the argument continues. And that's what I want to do right here. So for argument's sake, let's not rebut what Nunes has said so far, what all the Republicans were saying. But let's focus on this, the next part of the premise. And since the meddling was aimed against his campaign, he'd have good reason for sending his personal attorney to make inquiries about it. No, no, no. Now we can start our rebuttal, and I start here. It's not a good reason. It makes no sense. In fact, 
It makes less sense than the first part about Joe Biden being corrupt. That's just a lie. Well, did I, did I go back on my vow to take them in good faith? Anyway, even if it weren't a lie, let's really think about the second half of the argument. First of all, Nunes said that Ukraine election meddling was a threat to Donald Trump's campaign. Now, remember what he said about 17 seconds prior to that, that the Democrats were saying that foreign election meddling is a threat against democracy. Democracy. So right there, you can interpret that as an admission that Donald Trump sees his campaign as something quite different from democracy. Okay, I I really don't think Devin Nunes is that sophisticated so as to lay down that implication. But think about what the Democrats did when they legitimately thought there was foreign interference in an election. When they saw signs that Julian Assange and WikiLeaks and the Russians interfered with the election, interfered with democracy. The Democrats and some Republicans who are acting patriotically had the State Department look into it. They investigated the GRU. They looked into Fancy Bear. They looked into Cozy Bear. They used sophisticated equipment to try to find, in fact, indicted many of these hackers. There was a special counsel. Remember him, Robert Mueller? So Mueller wasn't just investigating Trump. Oh, no, no. He was given the full power of law to investigate not just Trump, but the very real threat to election meddling. They hired in Mueller, the most qualified, respected, credentialed straight shooter that they could think of. And he brought to bear the full force of the Department of Justice through official channels and with formal rule of law. In his testimony, George Kent, a career State Department official, spoke for a moment about what he would do in his official capacity if he and he's not the president. He's just a guy who works at the State Department. If he thought there was a legitimate case of corruption. If we think there's been a criminal act overseas that violates U.S. law, we have the institutional mechanisms to address that. It could be through the Justice Department and FBI agents assigned overseas, or through treaty mechanisms, such as the Mutual Legal Assistance Treaty. As a general principle, I do not believe the United States should ask other countries to engage in selective politically associated investigations or prosecutions against opponents of those in power, because such selective actions undermine the rule of law, regardless of the country. And here now is William Taylor, the ambassador to Ukraine, in his testimony talking about what he would do if he sensed there really was corruption in Ukraine. A formal U.S. US request to the Ukrainians to conduct an investigation based on violations of their own law struck me as improper, and I recommended to Ambassador Volker that we stay clear. To find out the legal aspects of the question, however, I gave him the name of a deputy assistant attorney general whom I thought would be the proper point of contact for seeking a U.S. request for a foreign investigation. That's what should be done. That's the legitimate way to deal with a legitimate threat. Donald Trump, on the other hand, instead of using and leveraging the entire apparatus of the most powerful and potent government in the world... Instead, what does Donald Trump do to root out this very serious corruption? He sends in Rudy, Rudy Giuliani, just a regular guy, private citizen, has no force of law, septuagenarian, lost a few steps, hard up for cash. He's unqualified to actually be appointed to a position of influence in the cabinet. In fact, he's in this job as a fixer because the last fixer turned tail on Trump, turned state's evidence, and is now serving time in the Otisville Federal Correctional Facility in Otisville, New York. Mm. 
Trump is so worried about this very legitimate threat to honesty and fair dealing in democracy that he sends in his off-the-books lawyer, who's not actually his lawyer, because they have no formal agreement. Rudy has no formal role in government. He has very little expertise in the region. He's just a regular guy with limited skills. And who does Rudy, not the State Department, not Interpol, not the IMF, not the World Court, who does Rudy lean on to root out this very real corruption? Well, he turns to a former prosecutor, who's actually been charged by the IMF and the EU on corruption charges, Yuri Lutsenko. Yuri Lutsenko, former prosecutor general in Ukraine, his office was rife with corruption. The U.S. had told him, you know what, you should stop investigating the anti-corruption activists. So if they're anti-corruption activists and he's against them, I know how double negatives work. He's kind of corrupt. He's got a lot of corrupt prosecutors under him. How corrupt was Yuri Lutsenko, the Trump point man's point man on this very legitimate corruption deal? I'll tell you how corrupt. Lutsenko was fired in August, by the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky. Volodymyr Zelensky is constantly described by the Trump administration as essentially kind of a character witness. Lutsenko was fired by the new president, who today, in the hearing, Republican Representative Jim Jordan described this way. He was, in fact, legit and the real deal and a real change. And guess what? They told the president, he's a reformer. And one of Zelensky's reforms was to fire Lutsenko. Lutsenko, Trump and Giuliani's point man on rooting out this horrible, horrible so-called corruption. Last month, Ukrainian authorities announced that they had opened a criminal case against Lutsenko, the vector of Trump's anti-corruption pursuits. So if we take Trump world at their word that investigating Biden is totally legit, and if their goal was to get at this corruption... How does doing it through Lutsenko make any sense? And I think that'd be a good question for Ambassador Taylor. Um, sir, you're a Ukraine expert. You've actually fought corruption in Ukraine. You've laid out for us in the committee the proper way to fight corruption. Let me ask you, knowing what you know, if someone came to you and said, I got legitimate concerns about corruption in Ukraine, and my way of striking at that corruption is to go through Yuri Lutsenko, Would you think that person was A, extremely stupid, B, extremely unserious, or might you conclude that that person was themselves, C, corrupt? And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Daniel Schrader, who supports the Purple Project for Democracy, but is more of a fan of the Move movement for the masses. Just is also produced by Christina DeJosa, who's not all we the purple, but she is one carnation under God. What carnation? It's color. Hex number FFA6C9. The gist available to you in all your regular and some of your irregular channels. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>